I am confident that your applause is twofold. It should be in church anyway. One is in gratitude to God because you know the truth of the beautiful rendition Nancy presented. And secondly, you recognize the richness of her talent and you're grateful for that. So uh, what a wonderful piece we've just heard. Nestled in a beautiful Pennsylvania mountain is a place where our family retreats. In retirement, Pat and I hope to enjoy extended periods of time at that place. Her parents purchased it more than 60 years ago. It was just a cabin then, and now it's like a home. There's a sign at the end of the porch that identifies the place as Coffee Break. Now that name comes from the business that my father-in-law was in. He had a rather significant vending machine business. And in many factories throughout northern Dauphin County, he had vending machines, especially coffee machines. And he said to me, I, when I asked him about the, the name of his cabin, he said, well, it was by the, the money that I earned from people's coffee breaks that were able to have this. And so I named it that. It's interesting, though, that the folks having cabins and camps on the mountain around our place have changed the name of our place. It still has the sign with the coffee cup and the, and the steam rising from the coffee cup on the end of the porch, but they don't pay any attention to that. To the people in the camps and the cabins on the mountain, our place is known as the preacher's cabin. <laughs> and I'm rather proud of that. Uh, I hope in a godly way. Oh, for many years, those people on the mountain uh, were friendly, but somewhat detached. And, and aloof from us. And I got it. I understood why uh, preachers are a breed that tends to uh, cause people to have some anxiety. And uh, about four or five years ago, I conducted a funeral for one of their friends presented the gospel in as gracious and loving a way as I could. And from that day forward, a bond has been created with me and my family among the people on the mountain. And now we have a friendship. And that friendship is rich. And those people would do anything for us. 
Now, I'm going to tell you a couple very personal things. And this is not for personal aggrandizement. This ties in directly to the text that you're going to hear read in just a moment. One of my friends, a fellow who would talk to me when we passed in the mountain, but kept the conversation very simple, is considered crazy by a lot of the other folks, though they like him. He's in his early 50s. He has hair down to his ankles. Keeps it very neat, bound together in a, in a long, narrow ponytail that goes clear to his ankles. He trims it just so it's off the ground. <laughs> and... Uh, He is my friend, and he's a good friend. He will assist me without reluctance in anything I need help with. I go to see him. He stops by to see me. Here's how that came about. One New Year's Eve... He was alone in his cabin far back in the woods. Life was crushing him. His old hound dog was in the cabin with him. Jason was really alone. So I went down to his cabin and I pulled up a chair beside him and sat for a couple hours that New Year's Eve in front of the, his cook stove. And we talked about the hardness of life and the hurts that he was carrying and the issues that he was facing. And we were welded together in a whole new kind of way. A married couple, also in their early 50s, is finishing their new cottage there in the mountain. And they've come to me and asked that when it's complete, if they invite people from all around to come, well, I speak at the dedication of their new plays. And of course, I'm going to do that. Now I, again, I want you to understand that these personal examples are not to impress you about me. I can't impress you anymore anyway after all this time. But I want you to understand this is what I mean by the title this morning, living into the text. Living into the text. When you live into the text of God's word, it means we become a principal part of it. We insert ourselves 
actively and we function in the truth of the passage of Scripture regardless of the people whose presence we are in. We don't try to become like anyone else. We're always God's women and men wherever we are. But God's women and men must meet people where they are if we hope to bring them into relationship with Jesus. Now here's the scripture. It's from Luke 7. It's verses 36 to 50. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And, then, and when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. <clears throat> for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little <coughs> loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is no relationship on earth to be compared with the one that exists between God and his people. There is no relationship on earth to be compared to the one that exists between God and his people. It was God in the Pharisee's house that day. And you say, well, how can that be? 
well. It's what the prophet Isaiah said. It's what Matthew repeated when he told of the coming one. He said his name will be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. God in Jesus was in the Pharisee's house that day. Now that's so interesting. It was a spectacular place to be really because the Pharisees were the purists. They were the ones who wanted every I dotted and T crossed in the Jewish law. They scrutinized Jesus. They had him under a microscope constantly. They were hypercritical of the lessons he taught, the lifestyle he lived, and the people he loved. They didn't like that because he was so different than they. Because he went outside the box of the law and met people where they were. And that was the touch of intimacy that they hungered for. That's what crazy Jason wanted. That's what the people who heard the gospel preached by me for their mountain friend heard. It makes all the difference. All the difference in their lives. The Pharisees looked down their long ecclesiastical noses at anyone not adhering to legalistic religion. Pound it into them. Got to be this way. Make sure no one steps out of that hard path. Keeping religious law was the only acceptable sign of obedience to those guys. But Jesus had an unconventional holiness. And he was indiscriminate in his association with people. And that drew attacks on his character. The Pharisees critiqued his interaction with people they disregarded. They critiqued Jesus for associating with people they did not want to share company with. And they maligned him, who said of himself, I have come for this purpose, to seek and to save the lost. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus knew full well what the Pharisees were about. He knew what they were saying about him. He had been the the, the blunt of their harsh statements and the target of their criticism. Yet he accepted the invitation of Simon the Pharisee to go to his house to eat. He went to the house of one of his biggest critics to eat. 
thereby demonstrated, declared, if you will, his freedom from bias and prejudice. When you followed along in the reading of the text, did you hear Jesus' criticism of Simon? He did not extend usual courtesies to Jesus. It was kind of a come on in. The usual courtesies, such as an embrace, customarily extended, expressed in the time, wasn't given. Water to wash dusty feet wasn't provided. And fragrant oil to deodorize one's body was not offered. Simon was inhospitable. At best, he tolerated Jesus. And many scholars think that his attempt in taking him to his home was to entrap Jesus, to get something more to lay against him. Now, the setting was interesting. At this time, the, the, the patio or the patio garden was in full view of the, of the, of the street of passersby. It was, it was not uh, enclosed. It was not uh, cordoned off in any way. It was, it was right there. You could, you, you, like someone going down the sidewalk, could step into your lawn. They could just step right into the patio or the garden of this Pharisee. Simon and Jesus, the text says, were customarily reclining at a low table. That's where they were having their food. And quietly moving toward Jesus. Quietly moving toward Jesus was a woman whose life was so dreadful that she risked serious repercussions from the Pharisee for interrupting the social setting. The Bible calls her a sinner. It's kind of a code word here in the text, the ancient language for a prostitute. When you plumb the depths of this text, you have to see that she was shackled by her burden of regrets. She was weighed down with guilt and shame. And she sought the one who would understand and, if he would, relieve her of the load of a life lost. Until that moment, she kneeled at Jesus' feet.
The text says, the supply of her tears washed Jesus' feet. Imagine that. We would say she cried her eyes out. Her tears of regret, her tears of regret about the life that she had wasted and and lost washed Jesus' feet. With costly, fragrant oil, she anointed him. She bowed low in humble submission and kissed his feet. She was with a man who would not use her. This man would raise her up so that one day, I love this thought, so that one day her body would become like unto his own glorious body. The kingdom of God was enriched that day in Simon the Pharisee's house. A woman whose bad choices made her life miserable was finally filled with new possibilities. But Simon, what about Simon? Nothing more has to be said than to realize he sunk lower into godless religion. One of the pastors who served my home church liked to play softball. Uh, I remember this story from when I was very young. I guess I was about 10 years old. After softball games, it wasn't a church league, but he really liked to play softball, and he got on a team. And after softball games, the fellows on the team liked to go to a place in town that was called the Bottle Shop. And Reverend Bauer went with them. Well, didn't take long for that information to get back to the church. And there was an eruption. There was a furor. Our pastor going into the bottle shop. Our pastor playing softball with People like that. He had a great response. I remember how it was, as a, as a, even as a kid, it was 
my, my dad told me what the pastor said to his criticizers and it just burned into my mind. He said, when I go in there, I don't drink. I have a seven up. And I'm going with the guys on the team because Jesus would go there. And I want to bring them to Jesus. I don't want to push them away. One of the churches that I served a few years back, a, a very large congregation, I was relatively new. It was the, it was the fall months of my first year there. And we had a, had a very nice portico outside uh, that church, a porch portico, and, and it was a very delightful Indian summer Sunday. And so I decided that I would uh, just go down off the porch and stand on the main sidewalk and greet the folks as they were leaving worship. Now that particular Sunday, I had two complete pews, and the pews in that church were, if we put ours together, that would be the length of one pew. There were two pews that long filled with black people had come to worship. And one of the good old boys from that congregation came up and said to me, what are you doing? And what do you mean, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm preaching the gospel. He said, well, these are their exact words, what are people like that doing in our church? And I said, oh, you mean those people for whom Jesus died? Is that who you're talking about? You know who I'm talking about. Yes, I do. The black people for whom Jesus died, the same as he did for you. And while I'm your pastor, we're gonna open this place to whoever wants to be here. It was in that same church a couple years later that when I was, was preaching on the healing and the restoration of Christ, a woman just stood up in the middle of my sermon and started wailing. And what we, what we saw, what that congregation saw that day was a demon-possessed woman being called out by Jesus. You know what that woman did for a living? She was the town prostitute but she had come to church on a Sunday when I had a sermon that she, that she believed was just for her. I had a female associate pastor at that time and I asked her to, to take her aside because she was just distraught 
cried her eyes out and talked with her. The opportunities of God are spectacular. Now, I want you to know something. God will give each of you, God will give each of you many opportunities to live into this text. God will give each of you many opportunities to live into this text. And when that happens, thank him for it and invest yourself totally. It's what people who know Jesus do. It's what people who know Jesus do because his way is better. Jesus is better. You recognize that, don't you? That's the theme of your pastor's preaching this Lenten season. And so as, as this time of holy worship begins to close and you leave here, live into this text and go into the world And present the gospel to people where you meet them. You don't have to preach. You don't have to teach. But you do need to have the standard of love and grace that is Jesus. And then, when people are comfortable with you, they'll they'll bring up something that will be a leading question, asking you about why you live the way you do, speak the way you do. Why do you act the way you do? And God has just opened that door wide for you to step through and give your testimony. People need a savior. And after they have a Savior, they need a Lord to follow, one to be in charge of their lives. Live in to this text today and tomorrow, giving God glory and thanks for the privilege of that marvelous position he's put you in. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for the preservation of this incident in Simon the Pharisee's house. It could have been lost, and yet you inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to to keep it in their texts of Holy Scripture because it is so significant to its time and to ours. And Father, by your Holy Spirit, sent to guide and direct us, guide and direct us into and beyond this text as we more 
and more become your presence and your voice to all those we interact with. Hallelujah, Lord. Glory, praise, and thanks be unto you for this Christian life. Amen.